You can tell a lot about a community with how they treat their poor, widows, and orphans. Tonight we talk about the history and haunts of the former Claremont County Infirmary, a once massive institution that saw over a century of progress in social institutions, attitudes, and social welfare. And as rumor has it, some of those previous residents never left the property. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Hometown Haunts podcast. I'm your host, Kat Cloco, and along with me on this exploration into the unknown is Jen Kohler and Christina Wald. Woo, we, we went on some fun explorations yesterday, and we will talk about it in a little bit. You can stay up to date with us and our show by following us at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter and Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Hometown Haunts, where you can just chat with other spooky lovers and us on that forum. We're dying to hear about your personal encounters with the paranormal and fringe history from your neck of the woods. Send it to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com or join and share it on the Facebook group, Hometown Haunts. You can find our podcast wherever you listen and watch, or li- wherever you listen to podcasts and watch our show feed on YouTube. Just find us by searching Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. Please take a moment to rate and review us on those platforms so other spooky story lovers just like you can find this show. Thank you much in advance. And of course, there is a link in the show notes. And everyone, thank Jen for posting the podcast every week, everywhere on the internet. So, for show news, first of all, we went on an exploration around Claremont County. I drug these two women across some properties. (laughs) That sounds really weird. You can unmute yourselves and talk about what we did. It was fun and really was the heart of why we started this podcast, which was I found weird places to take them to and then gave them a what a history lecture on the places when we were standing in the middle of like fields and cemeteries. It's really great. Yeah. I'm sure neighbors around there, I'm sure the people in that schoolhouse were like peeking out like, who are those people? What are they mm-hmm. doing there? This is really I never strange. knew the history of that cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. And with the chickens and the roosters clucking as we oh, were. Oh, yes. It was so cute when all the, the chickens ran out. Yeah, that was. It just, I just it heard the rooster. Cute. I didn't see him run out. Yeah, they were bopping around. I was watching them a little bit when I, because there was that old schoolhouse sign. And Mm -hmm. then I just turned to my left and there was just a little clowder. Can you say clowder of chickens? Those Somebody's going to correct me going, no, a group of chickens is this. And uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, a group of chickens. (laughs) A group of chickens. chickens. A flock. A flock. There we go. Yeah. They are Flock birds. Chickens. Yeah. My favorite is a glower of cats. Well, that one's fun. <laughs> it's so true. Yes. yes. <laughs> or a murder of crows. That is my mm-hmm. ultimate favorite. That is mine too. Yeah. Um, I like <laughs> how they coffee. they hold grudges. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. They do. And they remember it says you. Flock. Yeah. There's okay. not a cute name. Hmm. The most common collective nouns for a group of chickens are a peep of chickens. Oh, that's adorable. Or a brood of chickens. Ooh, that makes it sound dark and sinister. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. they can be, from so what I understand. Flock, peep, or brood. Mm. I prefer peep myself. I'm going with brood. <laughs> I wonder if that's where peep got their name, or is it because little... Chicklings Chicks just make those peep. little peep sounds and then you rip their marshmallow heads off and with your mouth. <laughs> wow. Everyone's going, oh. wow, cat. Really? Yeah. That's how you eat right. Easter candy? <laughs> like, Godzilla. Everybody eats Easter candy that way. That's true. Well, yeah. You got to eat the bunny's head first. Yeah. Put it out of its little sugary misery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So fun, fun. Well, what was the most fun place to go 
yesterday. I, I took you to two locations and we'll be talking about both of these in the next few shows, tonight's show and next week's. Well, I think it's no contest that it was the graveyard. Maybe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There wasn't much. The, the courthouse, because it's newer and just the way a lot of that stuff is styled. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something slightly depressing about it, which I mean, obviously we were there to see the potter's field, which that's also depressing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas the graveyard was just interesting. Mm-hmm. Looking at all the stones, wondering why so many said consort. I did look that up and I oh. have an answer. Ooh, so spoiler or, or no, no. I That's mean, for next tuned. week. Yeah, stay tuned. And as I'm going to write this down on a sticky note so I remember to put this in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I'm just going to have a random sticky note that says consort with a bunch of uh, lines underneath it. So at least for the courthouse, they didn't make it modern. It was just a um, colonial revival style courthouse. So give them some props for some creativity this time and age to put some um, styling to it. It's not a cement monster. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, I, I still liked the the courthouse. I uh, As you know, I walked across the street and mm-hmm. took pictures and <clears throat> I mean, there was the park. The park there was. I mean, now everything's just kind of drab and brown, but there's, st- to me, there's still a beauty in that. Mm-hmm. So I, I enjoy that too. And uh, especially on days like yesterday when it was really nice, it kind of felt like spring was coming and it kind of gave you that, it was just nice being outside yeah. for a little bit. Um, yeah. But of course the cemetery is my favorite too, because it's, you know, dead people and cool There's headstones. Dead people and really cool headstones. I was all yeah. about the headstones. And I yeah. like the unmarked wooden cross that we found. Mm-hmm. There was clearly where there was a plaque. It's probably being fixed, but it was your spooky imagination could go going, who is buried here? Why is it unmarked? Kind of like um, at the Lima uh, Institutions Cemetery, there is just headstones that are marked specimens. Oh. Yeah. And uh, that one makes your... Like, imagination go wild or like what are specimens hmm? like people they're most likely biological waste pits that they oh. put in the field but oh. so it's going to be arms legs toes to then not have an incinerator back in the day well, it takes a lot of fuel to oh, do that true. and you need to keep it at a constant i think over 2000 degrees for mm. quite a few hours so yeah. it's it expensive to do it that way. It's just easier to dig a hole Very. in the ground and throw yeah. parts into it. I yeah. mean, that was just easier. It takes a few hours to dig a hole. That's with a few men, manpower. Mm-hmm. It's just easier. So, yeah. And then you already had the cemetery. So why not? <laughs> True. Chuck True. it in there. So um, should we do some show notes before moving on to tonight's topic? Good idea. Yeah. So we will be at the inaugural Frogman Fest this March 4th at the Great Wolf Lodge Conference Center in Mason, Ohio. We will have copies of both issues of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Comics Anthology and cryptid posters and stickers. Friend of the show and author extraordinaire James Willis will be a featured speaker along with many folklorists, cryptozoologists, and artists from really Ohio and then to the mid-Atlantic area. It's been fun. A Frogman Festival has been posting all the different vendors and artists who will be there. And man, there will be an artist for you. There's tarot card readers as well who will be there. I think there's a psychic medium or two. There's really going to be a little bit of anything for everyone. It's $10 a person, but these are fun. These are all local artists. No MLMs to be found so far, which is great. Anyway, um, And then a little bit later in March, on March 18th, 2023, we'll be at the Highland Heights Comic Con in Northern Kentucky University Student Union. If you are an artist or vendor and are interested in the event, you can still reserve tables via their Kickstarter campaign, which I think tonight may be the last night for it. I just checked 20 hours, but obviously when this drops, it'll be over. Okay, so we'll be over by the time this drops. But if you're interested in going, it will be March 18th. And uh, we'll have more information as it develops, of course. So, on to tonight's show, which was excursion number one yesterday. 
So the sources for tonight's show is the Ohio Exploration Society, ClaremontCounty.gov, Claremont County History, Claremont County Genealogical Society, the Bethel Journal, the Cincinnati Inquirer, and Cincinnati Magazine. So I got a lot. <laughs> and it was fun digging through the archives of the newspapers, finding like articles and stuff talking about the infirmary. So before we start talking about Claremont County, we're actually going to go into a history lesson about American poorhouses and the system that they lived in, basically. So it is not uncommon for a county to have a poorhouse, also known as an almshouse before Social Security and other social welfare reforms were enacted in the 20th century. Popularized in England during the mid-19th century, the early American poorhouse was built, the earliest American poorhouse was built around 1827. Widows, orphans, the elderly, disabled, and infirm, and indignant were sent to live or lived at these properties. Or sorry, they were also left sometimes at these properties. They were not a debtor's prison, however, which is what a lot of popular belief thought they were. These were people that just did not have enough money. It wasn't a punishment to live there. They could leave at any time. Most people who arrived at the poorhouse did so because their families themselves or even the church communities could no longer provide enough assistance for them. In the case with, in the case with Claremont County Infirmary, many of the listed residents were elderly. Each poorhouse had a poor master or an overseer of the poor who was an elected town official. Poor houses were tax-supported residential institutions. However, life was not always stellar there. Poor houses were expected to be self-sufficient, tending and raising their own livestock, fruits, vegetables on the property by the tenants who were able to do so. So it really ma mattered on who was the poor master, depended on the quality of the poor house at the time. So if you had a great poor master who cared about everybody and put work into it, it was not a bad situation to live in. And pretty good for elderly people at the time, because you had a roof over your head, you were warm and you were fed. If you had a bad poor master, well, then things were a quite different story. And then that's where a lot of ghost stories pop out of. Um, and then a lot of these institutions eventually turn into nursing homes or uh, insane asylums and other things that ghost hunters tend to go to now in the 21st century. Poor houses were built with optimism in mind. They were truly uh, safe, safe housing for the community who had the greatest need. By the Civil War, there was a great disillusionment of poor houses, however, and communities started to favor the worthy poor or those who would only temporarily need their assistance. However, the Civil War also caused a great many widows and orphans and elderly family members who suddenly had no family to support them and wounded veterans who could no longer work. Laws were enacted to help families of wounded veterans, their widows and other family members using outside relief or providing help outside the poorhouse and prohibiting them from being placed in one. The Civil War Pension Plan was also created, which aimed to help families of veterans, however clunky it was rolled out. So uh, basically, the outside relief would be money from the taxes given to families to keep them out of the poorhouse. Basically, our social welfare system as we know it today had its early roots right after the Civil War. Post-1875, poorhouses became the jurisdiction of the State Board of Charities, Laws were passed at the time that prohibited children from living in poorhouses and removing those with mental health needs to different facilities, creating a larger orphan and insane asylum system, which I just talked about a minute ago. There is an, oh, sorry, there is an environment in the Claremont County, sorry, in this environment, the Claremont County Infirmary existed in, in at the time. So most of the people who lived at the infirmary were mentally fit, elderly, and not related to a veteran of the Civil War. So those were the population who lived. Also, because as we talked to Kelly yesterday, who's a historian in Claremont County, this was a big abolitionist neighborhood. Um, actually, most of Cincinnati was on both the east and west side. And because of that, you had a multicultural multicultural 
residency who lived there. So blacks and whites lived at this Claremont County infirmary. And we have historical record noting this. So what I really love about this particular location is they really kept meticulous, albeit very difficult to read uh, logs, basically. Not diaries, but they would meticulously write about everything that happened every single day in extremely beautiful cursive writing that was very difficult to translate so, or transcribe. So the Claremont County Infirmary History. Before the poor house existed stood and stood, it was the farm of Jacob and Henry G. Duckwall. The city of Batavia purchased 108 acres of land from the Duckwall family for $4,320 when Claremont County County commissioners decided there was a need for a house, as they put it, for the paupers of the community. The commissioners found that more property was needed, so they purchased purchased an additional 120 acres of land from Reader W. Clark for $8,400. The Boarhouse building was then constructed by George A. Miller with a blueprints compiled by architects Rockin and Hamilton of Cincinnati. It was completed on December 10th, 1857 and cost $4,998 to build and was used to continue and was used continuously until a fire destroyed it in 1877. The county received $7,800 in insurance compensation for the loss of the building. So interesting that it was insured. It was, that was not something I ever thought about until I was reading through the historical archives and logs for this building. And I have included a clip of the, oh, I just lost where it was, the 1883 Cincinnati Enquirer article saying the Batavia, Ohio laying a cornerstone. So this is July 28th, 1885 or 1883, Batavia. The cornerstone of the new county infirmary building was laid today, according to Masonic rites under the direction of Deputy Grandmaster Fletcher L. Day of Cincinnati. Reverend H.D. Moore was the orator on the occasion. The ceremonies were witnessed by over 1,600 people. So, that fun party. Look, the cornerstone is going in. Yay! In 1883, the Claremont County, uh, or sorry, Claremont County, began construction of the new county infirmary at a cost of $40,000. So this place was huge compared to the previous building. The new infirmary was completed in 1885 to welcome the residents of the previous poorhouse and all the other community members who needed assistance. The new building had 100 rooms and stood at four stories high and like before was expected to be self-sufficient as a working farm. We do, not, we do actually have records of what they raised on the farm. In addition to livestock, they raised corn, potatoes, tomatoes, beans, cabbage, onions, in addition to chickens, cows, and pigs. So for the hundred years it was in operation, the building was known as either the infirmary, the infirmary farm, the county home, or the old folks home. So that made it really fun to research in all the archives because every single news article decided to use a different form of or variation of what I've just read. Yeah, it was great fun late at night going through the archives. In 1965, the residents were moved to other facilities when it closed. However, it was then converted into county offices. In the fall of 2001, the old infirmary was raised, and today the Claremont County Courthouse and Sheriff's Office and jails and their animal shelter now sit on the poorhouse property, which is where I took Jen and Christina to yesterday. However, the jailhouse is built over what used to be the potter's field, especially the women's, women's wing. What remains of the potter's field has been restored and a sign put up to denote who is buried there and when it was restored. So, yeah, that was a uh, fun standing in the middle of basically a few over 300 acres of property. So basically all the flat bits in that bowl between the hills, that was all the poor house property. And that's where people lived, raised all that livestock and had their fields. 
So kind of remarkable when you're standing in a parking lot, knowing that you basically were standing in an apple orchard at one point. So before we move on, a little bit about Popper's Fields. Because I don't think we've actually given a definition on the show as to what one is, even though we've had multiple authors on talking about them. So a potter's field, also known as a pauper's grave or a common grave, is a place for the burial of the unknown, unclaimed, or indignant people. The most famous potter's field is Hart Island in the Bronx, New York, on the western edge of Long Island Sound. Opened as a city cemetery in 1869, it is one mile long and 0.33 miles wide, and in 2018 alone, they buried 1,200 people there. There are over 1 million people, ex- uh, approximately, buried there, according to the New York City Council. In Cincinnati, we have our own potter's fields, and they pop up all over the city and the region. Cincinnati Music Hall sits on top of a former potter's field. Bones of the dead are dug up whenever we have a renovation of the building. Price Hills Potter's Field has been neglected for years and in 2022 received a National Parks grant for the restoration of the field. Downtown, there was a Potter's Field between 4th and 5th Streets and on Madison Park at the corner of Madison Road and Erie Avenue in Hyde Park used to be a graveyard until 1905 when the bodies were excavated and moved to Spring Grove. There are some These are just some examples of the graveyards and potter's fields around the area. There are hundreds more, and possibly your home is sitting on one. Isn't that a cheery thought? Now on to some more cheery thoughts. This is going to be a slight content warning. I'm going to be talking about the people who lived and died on the property and use their names. This is done out of respect of the individuals so we never forget them and understand why preserving history is so vital to the community. So there is a chance that somebody who is listening to the show tonight may be actually related to the people that lived there. And (laughs) surprise, this is where they are. So during the course of the decades that it was a working infirmary, at least 315 people died on the property. We do have the discharge logs for those who had noted destinations of burial in most cases. So this is where I'm getting this information from. Um, Many residents listed were elderly and are noted of dying of old age, such as, and this is an awesome name, Flavius Davis. I love that name. He passed away in October of 1935 Davis died on the property. His body was sent for burial in Felicity, Ohio, but then it was returned that December to the poor home. He was later buried at Bethel Cemetery, a.k.a. Lucy Run Cemetery, a few days after that. There was also quite a few people noted for dying of consumption, such as It's noted as Geo, but it probably stands for George Harry, who was a black man who died while living there in March of 1885. Consumption and diseases were a leading cause of death in poor houses across the country, also in orphanages and insane asylums. There was a baby boy born there at the infirmary by the name of Andrew Beagle, who died there the same day, June 4th, 1887. Another find while going through the logs were that the amount of people who ran away from the poor farm and then were returned um, or only for their deaths to be learned about and noted later, such as Martin Vandrell in 1915 and Frank Rogers in 1921. Some people ran away, but were returned to the infirmary, such as the case for Kirk Fleek, another fun name in February in 1932, only for him to die on the property that May. Marion Yates ran away from the property in 1924 and returned later that year. She died on the property in 1926. We do know that some of the names of those buried in the potter's field, such as John Pelton, who died in 1915, and Chase Baker, who he has an unlisted date and has no direct address where his body was taken for burial, unlike most of the other people. Most people who were buried in the potter's field, however, were not noted in this discharge log. So only two out of the 315 people that I read through actually were in the potter's field and noted as being in such. 
Well, not in the case of Shays Baker. They, I assume, ended up in the potter's field. But um, anyone who was in the potter's field is not noted in the log. And basically, their names have been lost to history, as least of this moment. If you like to read through the infirmary's discharge logs, they are kept at the University of Cincinnati Carl Belgian Library in the regional archives. So that's where you can go to read this log that I took this information from. Now, of course, because this building is so old and has a reputation, it is rumored to be haunted. So when the infirmary was still standing, it was said to be haunted by the apparitions of men and women wearing disheveled clothes and looking out the windows of the old building. It was said that lights flickered in the building, even when there was no electricity hooked up to it near the end before it was raised back in 2001. The reports of hauntings escalated when the building was abandoned in the early 2000s. It really wasn't abandoned. It was just sold and de demolished. But anyway... And unsurprisingly, this is also when there were a bunch of urban explorers exploring the building before it was raised. I, I hedge to bet, and this is just editorial here, they were probably hearing each other on different floors, spooking one another without knowing it. But that's just me in knowing the community. <laughs> Many of those who died in the infirmary are buried in the nearby Potter's Field off Filiger Road. So the Potter's Field is located just north of the jail off of Filiger Road, a little bit raised on the hillside back there. It was not easy to get to, um, even though it is noted in many newspaper articles because it's proximity to the jail. And the case with the three of us, we didn't really want to get um, the attention of the sheriff's office, which is also on the property like we were casing the place. So we just stayed in the parking lots and in the public areas where we were supposed to be as residents, basically. So, and the Potter's Field mostly is taken up now by the jailhouse. So it's hard to take photos of that anyway. But we did take some photos of the courthouse. The women's wing of the jail seems to have the most reported paranormal activity on the property, according to local urban legend. That wing of the jailhouse, like the rest of it, is built on that's a section of Potter's Field that we know definitely was a Potter's Field, something only discovered after its construction. Ghostly figures are said to occasionally roam the halls as if they are looking for their graves and eternal rest, which was disrupted by the construction of the jail. So the hauntings are, by all accounts, still persisting to this day. I can only imagine when it was still before 2001 going into work and seeing basically the haunting image of a woman in, in disheveled clothes floating down the hallway, going through the doors. I wonder if they had cold spots if they had more than just electrical problems, things like that. So that that is uh, all the information about the Claremont County Infirmary that I have to share. I am wondering what your comments are on it. You just I thought what? it was really I thought it was really interesting. I, I went to school in Felicity and even oh, in there's the... a lot of people who lived at that poor farm that were buried in Felicity. It, hmm. It's a very poor area. Even when I went there, that's the school I went to that was K through 12. And I don't even know if it was 500 students. Oh, wow. Um, you know, in rural areas, they cover a huge, a huge area. It's interesting because it, this, this uh, report you put together really calls attention to rural poor in a way, because a lot of times media tends to pay more attention to, uh, urban poor because they're around you see them but actually urban poor probably are and and this is a horrible way to put it in a way it's better to be poor in an urban setting because at least there's places to go when you're in um rural poor areas there's nowhere to go there's not a place you can walk to to get food or yeah you know, the resources whatever. are far scarcer exactly. in rural areas and definitely there was a very I won't, I won't say well-known 
poorhouse that was in Ohio. It has since been raised because it was struck by lightning and caught fire once it was abandoned. was the Knox County poorhouse. Mm-hmm. Every single one of the counties in the state of Ohio had a poorhouse at one point. And some of them were raised. Some of them were remodeled and turned into nursing homes or other facilities. Knox County, I'm not so sh- sure of the history. It was trying to be put on the National Register of Historic Places because the same architect that worked on the ridges in Athens, Ohio, also did Knox. And it had some very distinct um, roof work that was special. Hmm. And they could not get it dis- the distinction in time. And basically the owners let it rot. And then it got struck by lightning and caught on fire and a few years ago, maybe about a wow. decade ago now. <laughs> but it was a very common place for urban explorers to break into. And it was very spooky. And also a lot of hauntings were said to come out of there. Mm-hmm. So um, also, was it Pythian? Pythian homes were also really common. So but those are slightly different than poor homes. Mm-hmm. It seems like it also draws attention to dealing with people that are poor especially elderly poor is still mm-hmm. a problem today i mean yes. if you look at housing for the elderly and that sort of thing it is still they don't know what to do with it yeah it is still a problem and families i mean and i don't know if they're perhaps eventually they will have some sort of way to help pay family members so that they can work to take care of their elderly relatives but i can only imagine back in the 1800s it was even worse because Mm -hmm. again there's no resources when you look at if you were in felicity today it's still pretty remote or moscow or bethel or any of those Mm -hmm. areas out there Uh, there's some beautiful areas there there are some nice homes there but it is very rural i remember when we lived in moscow ohio this is when i was going to felicity we decided we were going to walk to there was a little tiny would you call it like a convenience store kind of a 7-eleven kind of but it was a couple Mm -hmm. like four it was miles away Mm -hmm. and we walked there i mean fortunately my mom actually eventually drove and picked us up but it Mm -hmm. was a for a a bunch of kids you kids were given a little more leeway back then we walked there and you know it was really a long walk that was hilly yeah but imagine if you had no resources i mean talk about a food desert i mean Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there are people that live off hunting and and growing their own produce and stuff, but they're still extremely poor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, what I did like was the uh, mentioning of the churches that would try to keep people out of the poorhouse themselves, like community members. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, until it eventually got to the point where they could not help anymore and people would be moved into the poorhouse. So. I, I do know, at least in New Jersey, that you can be paid to take f- care of family members by the federal government. Oh, you that's have to good. take several classes and get some certifications, but that does mm-hmm. those kind of programs do exist, and not so many people know about it, which is important as our boomer generation gets older, knowing how to be able to take care of them in a dignified manner, basically, mm-hmm. and. This is me talking as somebody who has a silent generation parent who is an elder care. So there was a Simpsons a episode. It said everybody, all future jobs will be elder care. Yeah, they're not lying. <laughs> so, yeah, it's and it's hard work. And I tip my hat to all the people who do work in elder care and elder yeah, nursing. Yeah, it's extremely yeah. stressful. It's a lot of work. The hours. I was just reading an article about... I forget. They were talking about the difficulty getting people to work in the facilities we have today. And mm-hmm. they were saying, you know, if you're a dairy queen, you you just, you don't, if you don't have staff, you can close, but you can't do that with a facility because those, those require 24 hour a day care. Yeah, they do. And, and if anything, it's probably worse at night. <laughs> it does, uh, especially in like dementia wings where people uh, sunset, which is when everyone's temperament takes a 180 and they get a lot more grumpy and throw things. But uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, it takes a lot. They really should be paid accordingly to that. But 
getting back to the potter's field and uh, the poorhouse, one of the questions that I always had and never really, it was in the back of my mind and I finally got an answer for it was why on earth where Cincinnati Music Hall is today in Washington Park, it used to be a, a, a sane asylum. It was an orphanage and then it was the Hamilton County poor home and then the potter's field all on that side of um what is it elm street that they're on and uh i couldn't figure out for a while why we had three large buildings dedicated to these different segments of the population until reading about those acts passed after the civil war that denoted that children could not be put in poor homes they had to be put in orphanages and to protect the population of the poor homes we had the people that were deemed mentally unwell moved into a different facility so it was because violence by anybody was quite high at that time so um it was interesting because i always had that question and i never quite knew how to phrase it until reading the research about this location and went aha that's why we had three different facilities for this different groups of the community and the potter's field then across the street where Washington Park is, there was also the Presbyterian and Episcopal cemeteries, which are whenever they do renovations on Washington Park, they're basically scooping up a bunch of Presbyterians and Episcopals and putting them <laughs> in Spring Grove Cemetery. An so, interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So like, what huh. is the difference between an infirmary like this and when we went to the place in Marietta? Because that was also a... That was an elder care facility. But, that was but a there's mansion. a lot of but you had mentioned there were a lot of there was a lot of elder care here too. It was a lot of elderly so poor. It was interesting reading the articles about the infirmary. And it's interesting that they only referenced it really as the infirmary. They never called it a poorhouse, even though that's what it was. And I think it was to give a lot more dignity to the people living there. Because there's still a stigma of, oh hey. Uh, this person, let's say John Smith, is living in the poorhouse versus saying John Smith is elderly and living in the infirmary or the infirmary farm. There's just a little bit more dignity sounding to mm -hmm. the person who is the audience of whatever is being spoken. So that may be it. Um, Marietta, the uh, Anchorage, was for those who may have missed that episode, we went on a ghost hunt at the Anchorage and that was a 19th century mansion that was turned into a nursing home in the 1960s and was kept until the 1980s as a private nursing home. So there's another denotation that was a private nursing home versus a public almshouse or poor house. So that was um, just taxpayer funds for the infirmary, private for um, the nursing home and also the amount of people very were supposed to be different um, even though I don't think the Anchorage actually kept their population down they had them everywhere in the hallway and whatnot yeah. so and the type of care expected from what I can tell with the infirmary there were no nurses coming in and helping people this was you just lived there as a tenant kind of like a dormitory and you just helped it function like you go picking the tomatoes um feeding the chickens stuff like that they may have had a cook though and then you also had the poor house master mm -hmm. now one thing we've all heard from from a christmas carol was the workhouse mm -hmm. was that just and there was actually a documentary i watched recently on that from the bbc how was that mostly a British thing or did that also come over to the United States? I think States? there were more workhouses on the East Coast. I do remember them in Rhode Island and Providence because of the textile uh, industry that was out there. And I think the idea of a poorhouse originated from the workhouse. And definitely both of those were British thing like ideas to come up with housing the people who are working and the people that were paupers or not able to pay for their own apartments basically mm -hmm. so 
the workhouses, I think, were just for people working in a factory or a textile mill. And you were not being paid, but only by having a place to live and food. So versus um, uh, this is a potter's field. So kind of you're, you're working, you're making your rent basically by working the farm, mm-hmm. but it's only for your benefit because it's only, it's nothing's being outsourced. It's all internal. Now I will note that this did not happen at Claremont County. It did happen at older establishments out East and along the mid Atlantic there is an idea of indentured servitude that would happen. Uh, people that were in poor homes or almshouses would be auctioned off by um, basically the poor masters. And they would work for a certain period of time, like one to three years, at farms around the poor house. And then those families who had purchased them for that period of time could would feed and house them and that was a way of getting outside relief in a way but this did not happen in claremont county that entire system had been abolished by the time the claremont county buildings were created so i do want to put that those do exist they happened in older poorhouse homes they were not the case in in claremont county so and this was also not a debtor's prison no one was stuck there and they can never leave people ran away but i did not hear negative stories at all though then again who's telling the tales who wrote the logs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so who's in control of the narrative but if you have any of our listeners stories about the infirmary visited it before it was raised or have ghost stories uh please write into home was it hometown haunted mail at gmail.com uh we would love to hear them these this is definitely a section of regional history that does not have a lot written about it and would be fascinating to write more about it because this is really how a lot of our forefathers forebears this happened to them they lived this way we should be learning about it so that is just my call out for all of those who have stories from Claremont County and really anywhere around the area. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm including Indiana and I'm including Kentucky in that call out too. We should check that Erie Appalachia book and see if there's anything that takes place in that area in the Claremont oh, yeah. County. There's got to be some hollers that have, I mean, you know, you're, you're, it really is a very Appalachia uh, area. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of goes into that where you kind of go into rural Kentucky, rural Ohio. Mm-hmm. All of these areas were probably settled by similar people and are extremely poor, actually. Yeah. Kind of like um, for next week, we are talking about Lucy Run Cemetery. And that was also a family that lived out in West Virginia and came uh, or originally Maryland. West Virginia was a stop. And then they settled here in, well, in I almost said Bavaria, but no. Uh, Batavia. <laughs> thank you. Um, Maybe a Bavaria, they're almost the same. I, I have Oktoberfest suddenly on the brain. I don't know why. But anyway. Um, ready for a beer, I think. I guess so. I'm ready for a beer. But yeah, it's... Th- this is all the small regional... Uh, not small as in it doesn't matter, but small as in super hyper regional stories that we really need as, as an uh, anthropologist I have a lot of interest in collecting and really preserving these stories and they don't have to be ghost stories because mm-hmm. just we don't have a lot of information that was written down and preserved um, for by people the everyday person in America in the 19th century I, I mean there's we have worker logs from factories but we don't have too many logs from farming communities because mm-hmm. people just didn't think I don't know why they didn't write it down, actually. I it's remember when we, when we first moved there, everybody grew tobacco. Like, every barn you saw had tobacco hanging in it. and Everybody had, like, a little field where they grew tobacco. I can see that. That's how mm-hmm. they got through the Great Depression in Ohio. They they sold mm-hmm. tobacco. Like, and, and 
rum run a lot yeah. for all the bootleggers. But. Yes, yes. So I'm sure there's still quite a lot of interesting stuff that happens in those very rural areas. Yes. I mean, the population is very thin. I mean, mm -hmm. I think for our school district, I mean, our school bus ride every morning was at least a couple of hours each way because yeah. you have to cover such a huge area because there aren't that many students. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how much these districts cost the state of Ohio because there's no tax base. Mm hmm. Yeah. There's a little is... tax base, but not much. Yeah. And not, uh, not enough. Yeah. It's growing up. My high school was three townships worth of children. <laughs> that sounds weird. Uh, high schoolers. There we go. That sounds better. Uh, three townships. And it took 45 minutes by bus for me to get to school. So wow. it was worse when it snowed. Oh, Just, oh yeah. Sounds awful. Yeah, we had so. it. There was a snowstorm once when we were going to Felicity, and the bus just couldn't make it. Like the mm -hmm. roads were very windy and very hard to, you know, like very hilly. And, yeah. and it was like, fun driving. Well, well yeah, yesterday. you saw those roads. So imagine those roads. It was snowing, and the bus driver just let us off. Like it was over a mile from our house. But yeah. fortunately, we were able to stay at a neighbor's house till my mom picked us up. Oh, that is very good. So we, we walked down their long driveway to yeah. uh, stay with them Well, because we were wimpy kids. We were like, we're not walking this. We'll stay no, that's why, like, <laughs> I know in rural Indiana, this is definitely a thing. You would have a bus stand built at the end of your driveway and mm -hmm. you just stood there and waited for the bus to come. And it was a sheltered, it looks like, it basically looks like a roofed coffin at the mm -hmm. end of a driveway. <laughs> And it's not, it's supposed to be where students would, school kids would go and wait for the school bus and you had shelter from the rain or the snow or whatnot. Um, my, we did not have one. My, I just sat in a car and waited for the bus with my mom or my dad, but um, at least it was heated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting because as education's discussed I mean, it's kind of amazing that they educate everybody in these rural areas and the funds that they put so people can read and write all over. I mean, mm -hmm. back in these times, most of these people probably couldn't read. They didn't. There was no education. I mean, there yeah. wasn't probably a lot of prospects. Right. For... There was a limited amount of education happening. And uh, even less if you were a woman. So... Well, yes, that goes without saying. I mean, and, you know, where you were describing... I mean, it wasn't just war that took people away. They probably just died. You could die hunting by the creek or fall down a cliff. or mm -hmm. There were so many ways that you could and leave a family behind or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Illness is what took out a lot of these families. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know from my research in Indiana, in equally rural Indiana, cholera mm -hmm. um, and yellow fever took out mm -hmm. a lot of people. And we had epidemics that flew through these towns. Mm -hmm. About once a decade, it would just kill off so mm -hmm. many people. And we saw that in the cemetery yesterday, yes. where we would just see groups of people that died within days of each other. And it was most mm -hmm. likely uh, tuberculosis and cholera. Yellow fever was another one. And uh, there, are, and people kind of forget that these epidemics do come through and kill people before vaccines existed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm going like to leave that topic there, though. So it's not like you could get to a doctor either. I mean, now no. it's probably hard. I mean, that's one of the hardest thing is, is uh, I was just reading another article where it was talking about rural hospitals and facilities oh, yeah. are just closing because there's no one, there's no money. Yeah. There's no money. So back in the day, doctors would have a house with their practice in it. They usually went to you. So mm -hmm. they, unless you needed a surgery and then in Cincinnati, in this area, it was possible for people to go to the city to get surgery, but in more advanced care, but most likely your doctors and there would be a local surgeon around would be the, here to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Were they also the livestock vet? Sometimes. Yes. But most of the time they were a dedicated doctor. They knew how to stitch stuff up. Yeah, they knew. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> moving on. Off. To tonight's hometown haunt. This is from Sarah. I work at a cemetery. We don't necessarily believe in hauntings, but there is one very peculiar thing that happens here that we cannot explain nor rectify. There is one cylindrical monument that keeps rolling off its base. 
The monument is easily a few hundred pounds on its own and not so easily rolled. We have trail cameras on it and have never seen any cause. Most recently, our crew, crew used epoxy to fix it permanently. That fix lasted maybe a week. The stone is for a woman whom we believe died alone, filled with grief for a husband who passed during the San Francisco earthquake in 19, of 1906. After her husband's death, she lived with her son and the newspaper clippings from their times of death led me to believe things were acrimonious. I'd have to delve back into the details, but those are the highlights I remember. Mm, that's fascinating. Have you seen that happen before where somebody keeps moving something? Um, there is something. And when she started writing and I'm like, oh, I think I know. If Until she said San Francisco, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is in Ohio. And then she threw me that curveball and went, oh, there's another one. So there is something known as the Merchant Ball of Marion, Ohio. And you can look it up. It's like immediately... Um, it's on Atlas Obscura was the first uh, website that popped up. But I actually know about this from our James, friend James Willis. And he has it in Weird, Ohio. And this is a headstone that has a sphere on the top and it keeps rolling. No one knows why. You, they put a little dot on it and you can mark basically day by day as it's moving. And it's just oh, making weird. rolling and no one knows why. And it's been studied as well. So... And there have been attempts to epoxy it, to fix it, to keep it from rolling as well. And those have failed. It's moving very slowly. It's not like it's you walk up to the headstone and it's like this moving artwork. It's not doing that. But it is moving. So this is not the only monument that is in motion that I've heard about. So this is a great story. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. I wonder if it has like, if it's like ground vibrations or something. It's aliens aliens it's always aliens it's always aliens please understand listeners that i say that with a sincere just sarcasm but we don't (laughs) (laughs) some people truly believe and there's nothing wrong with that no there is not so (laughs) (laughs) just a little little kitty cat one that goes it's aliens (laughs) yeah but that is really interesting i love this story Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. thank you sarah very so. well written, too. Mm-hmm. Not well, that others true. haven't been, but that was a very They're all clear, well written, but this one's clear great. story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, on that note. Yes. So on that note, thank you, everyone, for joining us again on this wonderful episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Hometown Haunts podcast. I am Kat Cloco. Along with me for this fun expedition into the unknown is christina wald and jen kohler you can follow us at sin cabinet curio on twitter and at cincy cabinet of curiosities on instagram and please join us on our facebook group hometown haunts and there there are people chatting all week long and we will pop in and share interesting news that we find from around the world so anyway good night stay safe and stay spooky Bye. Bye. Bye.